You preach love and peace. You try to get people to think for themselves. You try to create a better world. And what do you get for your troubles? You get crucified. What's a Messiah to do? Sounds like it's time for episode 86 of Pop Art, where we find the pop culture in art and the art in pop culture. It's the podcast where my guest chooses a movie from popular culture, and I'll select a film from the more art classic indie side of cinema with the connection to it. I am your always look on the bright side of life host, Howard Kastner. Today, I am happy to welcome back as my guest, movie hyphenate, writer, filmmaker, academic, businessman, and coach, Tony Klinger, who has chosen as his film, The Satire of Religion and Biblical Epics, Monty Python's Life of Brian. Well, I have chosen Pierre Paolo Pasolini's austere neorealist, The Gospel According to St. Matthew, both films revolving around messiahs. Before beginning, I do want to encourage my listeners to follow, like, or comment on the podcast. I want to know what you think. So to begin, Tony, why don't you remind our audience something about yourself? Uh, thank you, and uh, it's an honor to be asked back. It must have been that I did something right the first time. A maker, as you said, and uh, a storyteller. The kind of things I'm doing presently, I've got four documentary films in present. One just about finished called Dirty, Sexy and Totally Iconic, which is uh, celebrating the 50th anniversary, plus one for COVID, of my father's film, Get Carter, starring Michael Caine. We've got The Man Who Got Carter, which is about my father's career. A, a little uh, obsessive, it sounds. We have Solo to Darwin, which is a film about a lady going from England to Australia in a gypsy moth aircraft. Her name is Amanda Harrison. And we have, last but certainly not least, the film Sisters, which is set in Kabul, Afghanistan, which is about the first, now probably last, all-female orchestra in that country. That has already had a showing or two at festivals and at the House of Commons, which is our parliament in the UK. Well, that sounds incredibly exciting, and it does sound like you're very, very busy. So kudos to you. I also have several books coming out as of next month. We re-kick off our Tony Klinger coaching for those who want to learn more about filmmaking and producing and writing for the screens. All in all, we have a pretty busy schedule. Well, with that, let's get to your selection, and that is Monty Python's Life of Brian, a.k.a. Life of Brian. For some information about the film, Life of Brian is a religious satire and farce released in 1979. It was directed by Terry Jones and written by Graham Chapman, John Cleese, Terry Gilliam, Eric Idle, Terry Jones, and Michael Palin. It stars Graham Chapman, John Cleese, Terry Gilliam, Eric Idle, Terry Jones, Michael Palin, Carol Cleveland, Kenneth Colley, Neil Innes, Quinn Taylor, Sue Jones-Davies, George Harrison, and Spike Milligan. At the time of the birth of Christ, in a manger nearby, is also born Brian Cohen. Growing up, he decides to join those who want to rid Israel of the Romans, but ends up being taken for the Messiah himself, leading to his own crucifixion. I thought we might start off by talking about Monty Python themselves. What is your experience with the group, which I'm sure is probably different than mine, uh, especially since you're British? I should preface this by saying it's a very funny film and they were very funny people, the Monty Pythons. Like almost all Brits and uh, several million Americans, my first knowledge of them was as a group on their TV show, which was here a big hit. It was kind of the follow-up to a series of previous incarnations of the called the Goons, the Goon Show, which starred notably Peter Sellers, Michael Benteen, Harry Seacombe, etc., was a direct descendant of that kind of very, very British humour, which sends everything up. So it's about a very revered thing being handled very, very irreverently. And unless you have that as a starting point, it's very easy to understand why some people got very upset because they take it all very seriously. I'll get into that later because I saw some of the reactions to that personally from uh, people that that were quite close to me in business. It just is a really funny film from beginning to end. It's very hard if you take it seriously to not be offended, which I guess is what they were taking a dig at, although they pretended it was nothing to do with Jesus and the crucifixion. The scene at the end of the crucifixion, which I think is just masterfully handled, when he sings that it'll all, all, think it'll all be, you know... Set. Look on the brighter side of life. I'm a Manchester United football fan, and I remember when we were having a terrible season that year, 
And one guy got up at the end and put his arms out in front of the whole crowd and started to sing that. And the entire 60,000 people started to sing it. It was one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. That shows you the kind of influence. They all knew that song and where it came from. On the plus side, the film was very well received in Britain. On the minus side, it upset a lot of people, unnecessarily in my opinion. My experience with the Monty Python began around the early 70s. Like most people in the US, I was in college. But every Sunday night, I would watch Doctor Who, sometimes the two Ronnies, and Monty Python's Flying Circus. This was something new to the US. We had something akin to sketch comedy. They were called variety shows, like the Smothers Brothers, Flip Wilson, and the monarch of them all, the Carol Burnett Show. But though these were filled with sketches as well as musical numbers, they really weren't what we would call sketch comedy because they were centered around a single person like Carol Burnett. Monty Python was our first experience with sketch comedy. After that, we went to Canada for SCTV and the Kids in the Hall, and it wasn't until Saturday Night Live that we had gold with sketch comedy. But you were talking about it had predecessors. It makes no sense now, but it was like at the time, they just came out of the ground fully formed. It wasn't truly fully formed. Apart from the goons, there was a thing in Britain still exists called the Cambridge Footlights at Cambridge University, which is where most of all of this stuff came from. But also in the last few years, because I have Amazon and because I now subscribe to BritBox, I was able to see some of the sketch comedy predecessors that had a lot of these, uh, the, the Monty Python people in it. And I could see there that they were honing their skills until they got to Monty Python. They were doing TV for a long time before they got to Monty Python. Please was famous also for a wonderful sketch on the two Ronnie's show where the, he was the tall upper class guy. Ronnie Barker was the middle class guy. And when he called who was the smallest was the working class guy and how they related to each other as with all these things with more than a hint of truth about the class system in Britain they took a dig at everything and that's why we all loved them Apparently, one of the two major differences in their sketch comedies that may have made it even more successful than others is that sketch episodes or individual sketches had trouble coming up with an ending. And if you watch Saturday Night Live, that's a really big issue. They have a good idea and they just don't have a way to end it. So Monty Python would just end a sketch and stop it in some way before it was over. That was the point of difference with everybody else. It didn't matter. It was incredibly brave of the BBC to have any part of it. If you think back now, when there's lots Lots of things happening in those days allow them to do it and to fund it being done was extraordinarily brave because it could have backfired in a big way it also Terry Gilliam was a big help because he provided a lot of the segues between sketches. Someone would come in and just say, this is a silly sketch and it would end, or a foot would come down, or a 2,000 ton weight would come down and fall on somebody and the sketch was over and they'd just move on to the next one. Yeah, and it caught fire. It also has, including the film Life of Brian, it's very, very typically British send-up humour. Part of the national characteristic of Britain, take the piss out of everybody and everything, including ourselves. And I think that's, it's strength. I think that's part of its beauty. One person on a show once said that the difference between British humor and American humor is British humor was focused on how do I phrase it? Really insulting people, really making fools of them, of other people, really, really integrating them. And in America, we would start out with that, but in America, there's always redemption. Yes. Our comedy. Well put. That's a very good definition of the difference. In Britain, there's no redemption. They just tear people down and you're a bunch of masochists. <laughs> yeah, we've got the tall poppy syndrome, which was also the Australians have got, which is if somebody sticks their head above the parapet, it must be chopped off. Yeah. Why did you choose this? I was thinking about of things that impacted on me and those around me in a way that was different. I had recently watched some very reverential films about the same subject. I found them disturbing is not the right word, but that they dissatisfied me because I thought you've got to look at these things from different contexts. I mean, I'm not an evangelical Christian or, or in-depth Catholic. I'm a nice Jewish boy from North London. But when I see something like this, I keep thinking... If there was such a person, and he did exist, he was a nice Jewish boy from Bethlehem. He might have been to us in history, historical terms, but in the terms of himself, he wouldn't have seen himself that way. In fact, it brings me to your comparison film, Gospel According to Matthew. And by the way, the title is Gospel According to Matthew, not St. Matthew. Right. And I'll mention that actually when we yeah. get to that. It's a more correct translation. 
when I look at that, forgetting the neorealism and all that, in terms of just putting somebody on a plinth, I go a bit further now, upset all the monarchists. And it moved me to watch the Queen's funeral last week. I mean, it's, it's a terribly impressive, dignified thing. However, it's a person being buried. It's not a god. It's the same. I get the same feeling about the film is that you can still laugh. You can still think it's fun to laugh. I'm very proud to be British in that the country saw it was okay to be laughing at it. You don't have to take everything so literally. I just think that kind of sums up England. And I don't think anyone else any other country or any other group of people could probably make that film. It's so British, the subject, the way it was handled. When did you first see it? I saw it immediately when it first came out. The more it got a bad press in terms of its religious content, the more I wanted to sit. So I, I think I saw it in its first ever week. One of the guys I was dealing with was a banker, and he was, I think, a fundamentalist Christian. I'm not sure of the definition of all the different types of Christianity. That basically I, means he believes the Bible is inerrant in everything it says. Yeah, well, then that's what he was. <laughs> and him and his brother and family, they never saw it. They were so much against it on principle. They not only never went to see it, they never went to the cinemas that showed that film ever again, which I feel sorry about. But that's kind of thinking in either direction would be for me completely wrong because I'm agnostic. I'm not sure that I saw when it first came out. I was out of college and living in Chicago. I did think it was hysterical. I was surprised because I had grown up with a fundamental evangelical background. Around this time, I was losing interest in organized religion. And I did expect to go see something that was, I guess, blasphemous. And then I'm watching this and saying, oh, this isn't blasphemous at all. It's attacking religion and followers and all sorts of social groups and ideas at the time. But it never once attacked Jesus or even God. And I was surprised at that. I thought it actually, in some ways, had a stronger central through line than the Holy Grail. Yeah. Even though it's still sketch comedy, the main plot was more cohesive. I think sometimes the Holy Grail was funnier overall, but this was actually hysterical. I totally see what you're saying, and I, I actually agree with you 100%. This is going to be boring if we agree with each other about the whole thing. <laughs> well, this is a very dangerous question to ask. It was very dangerous when I asked it when we covered Monty Python and the Holy Grail. What are some of your favorite scenes? I loved the sequence when they're saying, what, what did the Romans ever do for us? You get that, that series of answers about all the things, the aqueducts, the schools, the roads, etc. I loved the other scene, because I had been made to do this, but not those words, when they saw him painting on the walls, Graham Chapman, and they say, you got it spelt wrong. <laughs> <laughs> does it has to do it a hundred times obviously the crucifixion scene i just thought was hysterically funny i certainly agree with those the latin lessons i mean we never took latin in the u.s so sometimes yeah you get the grammar wrong you have to write on the blackboard 100 times the finale of course which is very controversial and we'll talk more about later the opening scene i love when they get the wrong manger <laughs> it's great they come back and get the gifts back and the stoning yeah and you're only making it worse for you says how can i I possibly make it any worse. Jehovah, Jehovah, Jehovah. The bizarre thing is, and I'm not seeking to get political, they just killed a woman because she didn't wear a headscarf in the right way in Iran. Things are still happening for real. And in the US, it might not be stoning, but there are assassinations as well for people who cross certain moral lines. I think it has relevance in more than just humor. It points to underlying truth. At this time, the directing duties were totally given to Terry Jones, rather than split between Jones and Terry Gilliam as in the Holy Grail. And how do you think that worked out? I think he did a pretty competent job from everything I've seen about this. I think he didn't see it as being something as of, of particular onerous. He didn't get very arty-farty about it. He was very direct. And I think he handled it almost mechanically. I don't think he was going for high art. And I think he surrounded himself with good technicians. I, think. I always wonder if, if you get too fancy and too clever, and we'll come on to Pasolini soon, it kind of detracts from what you're seeing, whereas it just flowed naturally. So I, I kind of think he did a good job. One of the reasons why they gave it to Jerry Jones completely is when they were doing the Holy Grail, there had been tension between yeah. Jones and Gilliam. So this time, Gilliam was in charge of the look of the film, and he did some animation sequences, and Jones got the rest. 
The consensus among the other members was that Gilliam was a stronger visual artist or visual stylist, but Jones was a better storyteller and was better at getting the laughs. I think that's true. That's the major issue I have with Gilliam. Films look great, but he's not that great a writer and at creating a satisfying plot. And even, I think he admits it, he says at one time he doesn't really care about the plot. He only cares about what the movie looks like. And so I often leave his films unsatisfied. I think that's an excellent description of both of their strengths and weaknesses. And I think this particular film was well served by it being about the storytelling. Although Terry Gilliam is a master visualiser, I find his films unsatisfying on the basis that they don't really... I like a strong narrative. That's not his first priority and it, and it shows. And he is responsible for another one of my favourite scenes. And it was this idea, and this is the one in which Brian runs up to the top of the building and he has nowhere to go. Yeah. And he falls off. What should have been his death, he's instead picked up by an alien spaceship engaged in an intergalactic battle. This was done in camera. They had a hand-built model starship and miniature pyrotechnics. In an interview, Gilliam said, quote, well, we didn't know what to do with Brian. He got himself to the top of the tower and we had to rescue him somehow. So I said, okay, spaceship for that. That was purely it. And I thought that was brilliant. I mean, you can do anything in a movie like this. Yeah, well, that gives you, you've got the freedom to do whatever you like and it worked. It goes to the point where you say, well, what's film about? Any film. And a film is about telling a story that is what the audience wants to see and that you want to tell. I think it works perfectly well that in that particular context that a spaceship comes. The screenplay was written by all six members of the troupe. I think it's kind of amazing that they all seem to work so well together. They both work separately, coming up with individual scenes, and then they would critique them, and then they would finally get them into this one narrative. But it works very well here. Particularly interesting to me is the fact that between this film and its predecessor, they pretty much split up, and they were all doing their own very successful thing on different shows in, in Britain. It came together very smoothly. I think they really enjoyed the coming together at this particular stage, more so than than they might have done later when they were doing things together pretty much for the cash. Today, they said it would be almost impossible to get them all together, not because of personal feelings, but just because they're all so busy. And how do you find the one time that everybody can do it? Nowadays, they're just getting a bit on with various ailments and things and, and one popping his clock. So it became harder and harder. And they were very, very successful in these other endeavours. It's kind of like the Beatles, but not with music. Well, there are many stories as how the movie came about. One is that it began after the success of the Holy Grail, and the troupe was constantly asked what their next movie was going to be. And annoyed Eric Idle finally said, it's going to be Jesus Christ, Lust for Glory. <laughs> and they just kept saying that when everybody asked them, that's what it's going to be. And this is a kind of a, a side story. In London, I think it's Belsize Park. I was in a lunch, a little restaurant. They were on the next table discussing what I think was this film. I couldn't hear much of what they said, but they were just having, they were cracking up laughing. They all had grown up going to church and receiving religious instruction, but ended up, I suppose, no surprise in many ways, non-believers who distrusted religion. That often happens, growing up receiving religious instruction. But they did decide to do a film lampooning the New Testament. Eric Idle and Terry Gilliam had come up with a sketch about incompetent carpenters building Jesus' cross, and it keeps falling apart, so Jesus shows them how to do it. But after talking and thinking about it, they realized there really wasn't anything about Jesus or his teachers to satirize. Idle said he's not particularly funny. What he's saying isn't mockable. It's very decent stuff. So instead, they took the idea of this person who had preached peace and love, and then the next 2,000 years, mankind did nothing but violence in his name. So that's where they decided to go with the comedy. I think that's a very good reading of, of what was going on. In terms of what they did, they achieved that objective, didn't they? I remember watching on British television, after it came out when people were attacking them, church leaders and people like that, they very quietly and nicely, politely, I thought, tried to say, well, it's not about Jesus. They wouldn't have it. They just would not believe it, not for one second. I don't know if you've ever seen those TV programs. There is one that you can get on YouTube, and it's the debate with the bishop and Malcolm Muggeridge. Yeah, that's I've, it. I've only seen scenes from it. YouTube has the whole debate if you want to watch all of it. They decided to go to Barbados to write the script. Some thought this was a terrible idea because they wouldn't do any work. They'd just be having fun on vacation. <laughs> But it turned out, as others said, it was perfect because in London, all they'd be doing is going off to have meetings, something else to make money, or as one said, Chapman would be meeting a guy at a bar. <laughs>
But living in the same house, uh, Barbados, after writing all day, they were still stuck together because they all lived together. So they just kept on talking about it and coming up with all days with ideas. So it turned out to be the perfect solution to getting this done. I think you can look at the screenplay from both the postmodern and existential approach. No surprise, because that's what I constantly do yeah. on my podcast. <laughs> and the existential approach lies... In two scenes, Brian's famous scene where he tells his followers that they don't need anyone to tell them what to do. And the movie portrays this essential, absurd world without any essential meaning. And the meaning is something you choose. And then the ending is also existential, though it's almost nihilistic. Everyone is singing Look on the Bright Side of Life, but it's a very deceptive song. It's like Our Town, which paints a dark and depressing view of a meaningless world. But the nostalgia of it in a portrait of the small town makes it go down like sugar. You don't really realize just how almost nihilistic the play is. And you have this lighthearted song, this is life is meaningless, you're going to die, there's nothing you can do. It just becomes existential when it says the only way to react to this is to laugh at it and just look at the bright side of life. Interesting you you pick on that. And I think, again, a very valid point. I was at a party in Brighton on the coast of Britain, oh, just before COVID. A chap sat down next to us. My wife said, that's John Altman, who arranged the music. And we started to talk, and it turned out that I had been friends with him when we were 17 years old. Oh. <laughs> I hadn't seen him in all those years. He's done thousands of things, musician, composer, arranger, and he also did the Ruttles. There was some real serious talent going into that film. Just to quote one of the verses, it says, for life is quite absurd and death's the final word you must always face the curtain with a bow forget about your sin give the audience a grin enjoy it it's your last chance anyhow (laughs) that's a pretty downbeat but you don't really realize it as you're seeing it it's a beautiful juxtaposition isn't it Yes. And this is where the group goes beyond satirizing religion and their followers. They're now promoting their own worldview. Of course, there's this old philosophical irony that's hard to escape from. They're saying, don't do what anybody else tells you to do, except for this. (laughs) You do what I'm telling you to do, which is not to do what anybody else does. It's like there are absolutely no absolutes. Yeah, you're in good form today, Howard. (laughs) But it's also postmodern, like many satires of this time were. Woody Allen and Mel Brooks, who would take all these various styles and ideas from the past, they would consider them all equal to comment on satirize, and they would use them for satire. But I think there's a difference between Mel Brooks and both Woody Allen and Monty Python. Generally, all Brooks did was satirize movies a little more. The big exception, perhaps, being Blazing Saddles, which gets into racial politics. But other than that, he just satirized a movie. Uh, you actually pinched one of my side movies, which was History of the World Park one which yes. I'm going to use as one of the examples of somebody in America doing something similar to this. Yes, uh, with that wonderful last supper scene. But Woody Allen and Monty Python would go beyond that. Allen would also satirize intellectuals and philosophy and history ideas, morality. Monty Python would satirize social and contemporary issues. So they would take this basic satire of old movies, things like that, and they would use it to make comments on the present day. Mel Brooks didn't do that so much. He would do it in a couple of films, but generally, he was just satirized in the movie. Yeah. According to Roger Wilmot, and I didn't write down who the hell Roger Wilmot is, quote, what the film does is place modern stereotypes in an historical setting, which enables it to indulge in a number of sharp digs, particularly at trade unionists and guerrilla organizations. So without question, the particular relevance to that in Britain at that time, trade unions were a major problem. They'd become completely politicized, less so about their workers' rights and wages and, you know, salaries and stuff like that it had become like a political agenda about them being the left wing an issue i left england at that time and came and lived in america for a while because it seemed ungovernable it's strange to think that that was the case and i'm not a fan of thatcher but she did achieve some economic stability and got it organized because before that it literally was seemingly falling apart at the seams it was very relevant for them to be commenting on that disparagingly not because they didn't agree with the views being expressed by those people, but because of the way it was affecting the lives of everybody. There is even a forerunner of modern day trans politics in the movie, which I was surprised that it came up in the 1970s. And that's when, mm. is it Eric Idle, I think, says that yeah, he, yeah. he thinks he's a woman. What's interesting about it is they make fun of him because he wants to have a baby and they said, you can't have a baby, you're a man. At the same time, later on in the movie, they're calling him Loretta. So yeah, well, he asked to be called Loretta. Yeah. So they are calling him by the name and identifying him the way he wants, even if he can't have a baby. The thing I found interesting, that scene could have been shot last week. 
Views were mostly positive, movie historian Leonard Malton said, this will probably offend every created denomination equally, but it shouldn't. The funniest and most sustained feature from Britain's Bad Boys, Fitz at Cambia, the New York Times, called the film the foulest spoken biblical epic ever made, as well as the best humor, nonstop orgy of assaults, not on anyone's virtue, but on the funny bone. Yeah. Roger Ebert gave the film three stars out of four. But Gary Arnold of the Washington Post had a negative opinion of the film, writing that it was, quote, a cruel fiction to foster the delusion that Brian is bristling with blasphemous nifties and throbbing with impious wit. If only it were, one might find it easier to keep from nodding off. What I'm getting from that is he expected a blasphemous film, something that the Monty Python people never promised and never said it was going to be. And so, yeah, you might be disappointed. That's a strange thing, because if it would have been blasphemous, then there would have been another series of even worse attacks on them. That's kind of going up your own tail, isn't it? Pretty silly. They didn't try to be blasphemous. What they're trying to do is make people think, and, and at the same time, more importantly, make them laugh. Well, I suppose now is a good time to get into the controversy of the film. But there was a lot of controversy over the film. But this started two days before the group was to go to Tunisia to start with the film. The head guy at EMI Films, which was financing the film, they had no problem promising the money at the first. Then I think it was Bernard Delfont, whoever was head of it, finally read the script. <laughs> and when he read it, that was it. Yeah, interesting, because he was a Jewish guy, Lord Delphon, as he became, and he was one of the Grade brothers, Lou Grade, who ran ATV television. And there was him and there was Leslie Grade, and the son of Leslie, Michael Grade, ended up running BBC and then Channel 4, and is now in charge of something else. One of those families, very talented people. They would make decisions purely pragmatically. If the waves were coming and lapping at their shores, and some politician would ring them up and say, you know, you really shouldn't do this, Delphon would have scrubbed it immediately. He didn't want problems, so it would have been that was the reason. It wasn't any opinion of his own, because he would do things that were purely to the purpose of his stockholders. But then two of the Pythons were in the U.S., and they ran into George Harrison, who loved the script so much. He formed his own production company, Handmade Films. He said he pawned his house in the building, financed it just because he wanted to see it. And later, Terry Jones described this as the world's most expensive cinema ticket. <laughs> Harrison was a really brave man in that sense, because I think he followed his heart and not his pocketbook. Let's be honest, George Harrison could have raised pretty much any amount of money he wanted, but he took the risk personally, which was, some would say, putting money in films is very foolish. I would say the opposite, but then again, of course I do. You don't want to put your own money in films. You only want to put other people's. (laughs) Other people's money is like the first incantation that my father taught me. Harrison was true to his word, and I think Handmade Films, then and thereafter, was a beacon of excellence and originality and daring that has really been matched by anybody else. Yes, they went on to do The Long Good Friday, Time Bandits, Mona Lisa, With Nail and I, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, along with 30 other features. Yeah, just the films you just mentioned, they were all pretty much outstanding films. 39 local authorities in the UK either imposed an outright ban or imposed an X, not suitable for anybody except over 18. Some countries, including Ireland and Norway, banned its showing. And a few of these, such as Italy, the ban lasted decades. Filmmakers used the notoriety to pronote the film with posters in Sweden reading, so funny it was banned in Norway. (laughs) Can you think of a single thing other than their contrived attitude about blasphemy that didn't exist? What was there in the film that you could find so objectionable that it had to be an X, let alone ban it? On a documentary about the making of it where they were interviewing the Pythons, someone said the thing was you could ban it in one's borough and people would just all go in groups to the borough next door and they would see it there. Well, I remember as a filmmaker myself when I was young, uh, about 19, 20, and I was making my third film, the censor in England, we then had a, a very strict censor, who said, well, I'm going to give it an X and you're going to make these cuts. And I begged him to ban it. <laughs> I was like, please ban it. And he went, no, no, I'm not going to ban it. He said, I know what you, that means. It means you're going to get a lot of publicity. I said, yes, ban it. And he wouldn't. And of course, now we should mention Mary Whitehouse, who reared oh. her head at this time. Mary Whitehouse, oh, she was iconic. I think she'd been a school teacher, school headmistress, principal. She was, I know what's good for you type of lady. She was 
church going very strict this is how it's going to be and she formed a group of like-minded people particularly middle class ladies they made it a crusade to stop films and tv shows like this and she went further she was like the president of this associational group it wielded immense power for a long while and it wasn't that big a movement but she made it appear like it was she was a great self-publicist if you look back at it you think oh it's a figure of fun no one could take that seriously because she was so prima proper but the fact is everybody did take her seriously except the Monty Pythons I think you mentioned that you were approached to help ban the film it was the guy who was my the banker I was telling you about he thought I and my father had some sway in the film industry well we did and that we would help them do everything we could to not allow the film to be shown. Terry Jones said, quote, we always stated Brian wasn't blasphemous, but heretical. It wasn't about what Christ was saying, but about the people who followed him. The ones who for the next 2,000 years would torture and kill each other because they couldn't agree on what he was saying about peace and love. What I find ironic here is that he's right. They never attack God or Jesus or make fun of them, but they do attack religion. And the irony is that this is what Jesus was crucified. They claimed he was being blasphemous when all he was doing was attacking the religious observances at the time. He was a devout religious man. Exactly right. One of my grandfather's friends, I think it was, told me when I was a, a child, he said, be very careful of men with big hats and bushy beards because they'll have your head off. The Pythons themselves did make some changes. They thought they were going to have a hard time getting it passed by the censors. The censors only had one problem, and that was the use of the C word. Yeah. He said, if you change this, we'll give you the... Anyone over 16 can see the movie. Otherwise, we have to give it the highest rating. So they changed the word with klutz. That was not aimed at them specifically. That was every film. Right. It's like the F word in the U.S. Yeah. When it comes to ratings, there are certain restrictions on how you can use that word. They also made another set of cuts, and this revolved around the cutting out of seasons involving Otto, who was a recurring character in the film. He had a Hitler mustache, spoke with a German accent. He railed about racial impurity, about Jews who were born because their mothers were raped by Romans. They extended the Jewish star lines to make it look like like Bustka. Now, the official reason for getting out was that he slowed down the narrative. And they have a point. I've seen the deleted scenes. And not only for me is the satiric point muddled, I was never quite sure what they were going after because it somehow gets muddled with this, their suicide squad. And but those scenes, they really stopped the Ford momentum dead. I mean, just dead. But it sounds like they did him a favor by getting rid of those scenes. <laughs> Some claimed it was because it was coming too close to attacking Zionism, treatment of Palestinians, and this would make it harder to get a distribution deal in the U.S. Of course, it was a Jewish story, but it was being made by Gentiles, so a Gentiles attacking Israel might have backfired. Terry Gilliam wanted to keep it. He said, listen, we've alienated the Christians. Let's get the Jews now. Idol, however, said it's essentially a pretty savage attack on rabid Zionism, suggesting it's rather akin to Nazism, which is a bit strong to take, but certainly a point of view. They're only seen as a suicide squad at the crucifixion, but may have only been kept for continuity reasons that they are seen in the background during these scenes. Yeah, I, I've never seen the scene that had been deleted, so I can't really comment on it. And I get the point, and I wouldn't argue against it on political grounds, but I disagree with it. But I wouldn't argue about it's being allowed to be included. But if it's slowing down the narrative and it's clouding everything, then it's probably yeah. a film decision not to include it. Do you have a favourite actor or performer in the group? I've always favoured, just because he makes me laugh, just to look at him, John Cleese. He just is a funny man. He's not a man who does funny things, but he's a funny man. And I think that was best evidenced in 40 Towers, the TV series, in which I think he was just total brilliance. And I don't think any of the others could have ever done that. Yeah, he's my favourite in the film and my favourite of the group. Six cast members played 40 characters. I agree with you. I always thought John Cleese, even in watching Monty Python, the series, I thought John Cleese was the best in the group because he always just seemed to inhabit these characters. So naturally, he was never John Cleese. The yeah. others were obviously playing these characters. He wanted the lead, but he got outvoted and he finally agreed that was probably best. I do think Chapman does a good job of holding the movie together, but John Cleese, they wanted him to play these other characters. They said nobody else could play these other characters like you played them. So I think they were right. I think that was a good choice the way round they did it. The cinematography was Peter Bijou. Not sure how to pronounce his name. He had a solid career. He worked on many successful films. I'm not convinced he can be ranked with the greats or the near greats, but he's a very solid cinematographer. I did a, no a number of notable films. The film was shot on location in Monastir, Tunisia, which allowed the production to be used sets from Franco Zeffirelli's Jesus of Nazareth. 
I was interested when I was viewing it again, remembering it had been shot in Tunisia. Could you imagine doing that film in the same kind of way about Mohammed in Tunisia and getting away with it? This is a side story. It's very funny. At the time when Salman Rushdie and then eventually later the attack in France on the newspaper, um, South Park was going to have a show. They were going to show Mohammed. And the production company, the network, at the last minute said no. And they had to block it out. The odd thing about it is that in watching reruns of it, because there would be reruns on every night, in a previous season, they had something called the Super Friends. And it had people like Lincoln and Jesus and people like that and it had Muhammad and they showed Muhammad in that cartoon and nobody ever stopped that from being shown again it was just really kind of weird yeah I don't know how that happened but it's interesting isn't it that that could get through many of the locals that were employed as extras in Lack and Brian were also extras in Franco Zeffirelli's Jesus of Nazareth, Terry Jones noted, quote, they were all very knowing because they'd all worked for Franco Zeffirelli on Jesus of Nazareth. So I had these elderly Tunisians telling me, well, Mr. Zeffirelli wouldn't have done it like that, you know. <laughs> Jeffrey Bergen, I believe is the name, did the score. I will always remember him for the great score for Bright Henry, which I consider one of the greatest scores ever written television. Yeah. He did a lot of the what we would hear called the masterpiece theater yes as well as most of his composition uh, classical music he was a talented man obviously the opening number is a great satire of james bond themes andre <laughs> jockman and dave hellman did the music and michael palin did the lyrics i love that opening yeah and look on the bright side of life has become a semi-standard you talked about when they started singing it at the football match yeah in 1982, during the Falklands War, sailors aboard the destroyer HMS Sheffield, which was severely damaged in a missile attack on May 4th, started singing it while awaiting rescue. It's big <laughs> at funerals. Yeah. Many people have come to see the song as life-affirming ode to optimism, though it's not really. It's also featured in Eric Idle's Spamalot, which finally gives a nice ending to Monty Python and the Holy Grail. In the movie, they really couldn't bear a good ending, but on stage, they actually did. And it was sung at Graham Chapman's memorial service. Yeah. I guess Iron Maiden concerts used it too. I, mean, I thought John Cleese's speech at his memorial service was one of the great speeches. Yeah, he said something like, if Graham Chapman laughed at it, he knew it was funny. Yeah. <laughs> They were a bunch of funny men, and Graham Chapman was probably the most interesting of the group I found. Terry Gillum thinks he's the most interesting. Yes, <laughs> I can believe that. Well, with that, here's some more information about the movie. The film cost $4 million to make and made 20.7 at the box office. It was the fourth highest grossing film in the United Kingdom in 1979 and highest grossing of any British film in the United States that year. George Harrison appears as Mr. Papadopoulos, owner of the Mount, who briefly shakes hands with Brian in the crowd scene. His one word of dialogue had to be dubbed in later by Michael Palin. Mike Milligan plays a prophet, ignored because his acolytes were chasing after Brian. He was just by coincidence visiting his old World War II battlefields in Tunisia. And the Pythons found out they put it in the film, but he disappeared in the afternoon before he could be included in any of the close-ups or publicity shots. Michael Palin's son appeared at the Mount with George Harrison. He was the only Python child who wanted to be in the film. Charles Node, the costume designer, appeared as the passerby who sees Brian emerge from a crashed spaceship and says, Ooh, you lucky bastard. <laughs> Kenneth Colley, who played Jesus, became better known playing Admiral Piet in The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. Graham Chapman, suffering from alcoholism, was so determined to play the lead role that he dried out in time for filming, so much so that he also acted as the on-set doctor. Because he was a doctor in real life. Yeah, he was a qualified doctor. Interesting that Spike Milligan gets a mention there, because Spike Milligan, remember I was talking earlier about the goons and the goon show. He was the, even above Peter Sellers, really the lead protagonist that was the genesis for the ideas of the Monty Pythons. Yes, they always said that the goon show and Spike Milligan were huge influences. He was also a deeply troubled man. Very, very funny. I once went to his office, which he shared with Johnny Spate. He was a writer of Till Death to His Part, which in America became all in the family. And on his wall, he had a like one of those glass things you break for a fire. There was a cheque for a million pounds in it. And it said, in case of bankruptcy, break glass. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> After the first take of the scene where a nude Brian addresses the crowd from a window, Terry Jones said to Chapman, I think we can see that you're not Jewish. <laughs> Referring to Chapman being uncircumcised, it was corrected in subsequent takes with a rubber band. Sonia Jones singing the opening song was actually just 16 years old at the time it was recorded. The only character who appeared in all four Monty Python movies, and now for something completely different, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, the meaning of life in this one is God. <laughs> in the documentary series Real Britannia, which was a study of British cinema from like the late 50s to around the 90s, it was noted that during this period, British cinema was becoming more diverse in subject matter, dealing with the gay experience, the black experience, the Middle East experience in Britain. But there was only one film dealing with the Jewish experience, and that was Life of Brian. That's interesting. I hadn't ever thought about that, but I think that's true. Well, with that, let's get to my selection, and that is Gospel According to St. Matthew, or for a more accurate translation of the Italian title, The Gospel According to Matthew. First, some information about the film. The Gospel According to Matthew is an Italian neorealist biblical drama released in 1964. It was written and directed by Pier Paolo Pasolini, adapted from The Gospel According to St. Matthew in the New Testament of the Bible. It stars, and it has a cast of thousands. I'm only going to list the major actors or the ones who had existences outside of the film. It stars en Enrique Arizaki, Margarita Caruso, Marcello Moranti, Mario Socrati, Enzo Siciliano, Rodolfo Wilcock, Paolo Tedesco, and Rosano Di Rocco. The story is the life of the Christ as described in the New Testament book of Matthew, one of Christ's disciples. From Jesus' birth, escaped Egypt, baptism, temptation by the devil, his miracles in preaching, and finally his betrayal, trial, and crucifixion, ending with his resurrection. Before beginning, I thought we might talk more in general about how film, in general, has covered spiritual and religious topics. Because I think there's a big difference in how America and non-American, especially European, approach subject matter. I don't know if you felt about this, but do you see a difference? There is certainly a difference. It starts off, I suppose, by if you examine Pasolini, he was an avowed Marxist. So he comes at it from an unusual angle. Consequently, if you're coming at it from that kind of angle, you're going to come up with a very different view than if you are in yourself a religious person. Uh, he wasn't. Well, he was passionate, although he was passionate about his Marxism. He was an interesting man who I, I was fortunate enough to meet. I don't think American films, I mean, I'd sort of say the exception would be in the modern era, Gibson's The Passion. There's almost like the, the, you say the words in American films and there's the swelling choir and the shining light everything's deified and a bit much like that in english tv as well i think i think in europe it's more down to earth and gritty in the way it's being perceived which is how it probably was in real terms i think that if you look at some of those films the american ones they're kind of more easy to swallow but i felt that in pasolini's work and i'll go into a bit more about that later it just feels more real I think a lot of what you say duplicates what I think. Because in the U.S., we have these biblical epics and feel-good films that touch on spirituality. The epics are often fun, but they're often kitschy and campy, like you say, the swelling choirs and everything like that. And sometimes they're fun because they are kitschy and campy. We have the Ten Commandments and The Greatest Story Ever Told and Ben-Hur. And we have these feel-good films like Going My Way and It's a Wonderful Life. Movies definitely decide not to offend anyone. The other area you see a lot of it is in horror movies where you need extremes of good and evil. But Europe seems to take the subject matter much more seriously. I mean, we have everything from The Seventh Seal to Diary of a Country Priest and films by Boonwell and Tarkovsky and Slavsky. And I always thought that England seems to have a way of, of incorporating religion and religious persons into everyday life in their show. In couples, there was this short arc about an Anglican priest that becomes involved with one of the characters that I thought it was just so matter of fact he was about the only one they never laughed at you have things like Grandchester and yeah. you have that amazing priest character in Fleabag which I think blew everybody away but also when it comes to comedy and satire I don't think the US could ever get away with Father Ted yeah well I think that's probably also due to the fact that I think America is still the most church going country in the world certainly one of them and they don't want to upset, I don't know, 60, 70 million people. Whereas in like the UK, the figure would be vanishingly smaller. And I suppose that affects the way we perceive these things. So it becomes more everyday. Things have just moved on and in a way that hasn't in America. I think it's more healthy to be more cynical and more analytical in your examination of films about religion. 
We have had exceptions, mainly lately. We've had Warren Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ. We've had Paul Schrader's First Reformed and Michael Tolkien's The Rapture. I like what you said about a difference between religious observance and observance of religion. As I had a friend who once summed it up by saying, in Europe, being a Christian or believing in God is an intellectual decision. Yeah. In the U.S., it's an emotional one. That's very perceptive and accurate. What do you think of the pairing of the two films? I love the pairing of the two films because I think they demonstrate very suitably the different ways we treat religious icons or blasphemy or the masses of people and their observance of things. I think you couldn't possibly demonstrate it better. I dealt with Pasolini on a personal level, the pause cutter of the film in the UK when it came over and I was a kid, I was an apprentice. It knocked me out. I hadn't seen a film like that. And then I gobbled up everything. I could see of Pasolini and met him and, you know, all that kind of thing. When I look back at it, actually, it's really interesting because I look back at it and I look, wow, this is so stylized. It's so over stylized. It's kind of embarrassing, some of it. However, the scenes which are climactic, like the crucifixion, are fantastic. Opinion. I love them. In terms of comparing, I think it's just a wonderful pairing because it's really weird because he's a, an avowed Marxist that he would be reverential in a very downcast way is using his left-wing isms to say yeah that's what jesus is really about he was a man of the people whereas although it's not blasphemous life of brian does take a completely different standpoint in terms of how these things could be perceived and so you've got the two extremes of the perception they both have some form of legitimacy in my opinion but for different reasons i do think that the perception of the people and how they would live and how they would perceive things is is pretty accurate in the gospel according to Matthew. You don't realise how great something is until after it's happened. It's very, very hard to perceive something as being genius at that moment. I found the comparison very compelling. I can't remember when I first saw it. My guess is it was probably sometime in college as I was trying to expand my views as to what cinema was. During the weekend, then on weekends, they'd be showing lots of films. So this might have been shown by the film department or it might have been some organization trying to raise money. But I was blown away by it. I had, hadn't really seen any other films like it. I'd probably seen a couple of neorealist films, but this was a film about Christ that for me was almost transcendental. I was really surprised because I knew ahead of time that Pasolini was not just a Marxist, he was an atheist and he was gay. Yeah. And at this time, I was still involved with some religious organizations, so I wasn't really expecting something like this on the screen, and it blew me away. And it still has that power over me. What are some of your favorite scenes? Well, I already touched on the crucifixion. I thought the opening scenes and I thought those cuts to people reacting. I don't even know if they were actors. <laughs> yeah, it has a power and an honesty to it, in my feeling. I think I found the whole film compelling. I didn't find, except for the end scene, I could pick out one scene and say that's a lot better than, you know, more compelling than those other scenes. I just found the whole thing. It really gripped me again. I was 15 I think. My dad distributed the film in the UK. When it came here and they said, you've got to do the pause cutting, you know, whatever's necessary. And I didn't want to do it. I just thought, oh, cool, who's this guy? You know, and I didn't really know anything. I was a kid, you know, I was on my school vacation. It was like, this is a kind of like a lesson for me. I can't remember anything blowing me away like that. And I found it, well, educational is not the word. Inspiring is not the word. Absorbing, I think, is the word. And I found it very hard to analyse it scene by scene because of that it just gripped me as a, it's like a poem i think that's the way i describe it it's like watching a poem come to life and i don't think it's brilliantly filmed and i don't think it's compellingly filmed and the use of music is i think also wonderful i certainly agree with the crucifixion scene i also love the baptism scene because there's this yeah. one woman whose head goes back and her eyes look just white it's like her pupils have disappeared from her head and there's just something incredibly powerful about all these people coming down and being baptized. And you're right about the use of these non-actors. So it's not like Brazon, who not only uses non-actors, he doesn't want them to act at all. Yeah. Pasolini doesn't want them not to act. And he is able to get very compelling and powerful emotions from them, or he knows how to film them or line them up. It's very striking and, and it works very well. He actually, came back to Life of Brian, I mean, if you analyse what he does, you'd say, well, he's not going to be a good storyteller. But actually, with the minimum of words and everything, he's a wonderful storyteller. You totally understand what's going on, even with very few words, and most of it being, I saw it with uh, subtitles. 
should share this because I was having trouble finding a copy of it. I have this place on my TV where if you enter the name of the movie, it will tell you what streaming services have it. And it didn't list Criterion. It just listed Amazon. So I go to Amazon and it's this 90 minute version that's been colorized. I go to YouTube and I find this beautiful copy of it. I'm watching it, but there's no subtitles. I keep watching it because, well, I know the story. I've read the book. I've seen other movies of it. I know what the dialogue is. It's incredible to look at. I just got a, the look of the film. That's all I was getting from that was the look of the film, which was quite incredible. I then found out that, yes, Criterion had it, so I picked it up and started watching it with subtitles after that. The version I got, the new version, because I had a really terrible version from years ago, but I got a transfer in high def in the original, and it stands up both as a film and a pictorial essay. I think he was a magnificent filmmaker. Ask you, what do you think of Pasolini? I loved his work. Once I saw this, I saw everything and got involved with everything I could. I was agitating always that my father's company should buy the rights for the UK of everything he did. Sight unseen. <laughs> it's like saying you've got Orson Welles available. To, would you look at his next film? You go, yeah, I want his next film. That's what art house cinema should be. It's a pity that not everybody saw that. I just think it's a wonderful film. And I think all his films have a distinct style that's really interesting and very desirable. I don't know how old he was when he died. It was very young, wasn't it? He was, he was killed, wasn't he murdered? Yes, though there is disagreement over who killed him and why. I've heard those stories. It was tragic because he was one of those outstanding talents that seemed to come out of places like France and Italy and Greece that you go like, oh, wow, what a talent. Like a Bertolucci or you go like Costa Gavros. People that you go, wow, he does some interesting work. He's also one of my favorite directors, certainly after I saw this film. And I slowly started watching a number of his others. I wasn't quite sure why he worked so much for me. There is something raw and powerful in his images and yeah. his approach to religious subjects, as well as his style of making movies. I hadn't really seen anything like it. You do get other people that use somewhat of the same style, like Brazan, Rossellini, and early Fellini. But there is something about Pasolini. The dialogue is taken directly from the Gospel of Matthew. Yeah. Pasolini felt that images could never reach the poetic heights of the text. He reportedly chose Matthew's gospel over the others because he decided that John was too mystical, Mark too vulgar, and Luke too sentimental. <laughs> but in this, he uses the trappings of neo-realism, location shooting, non-actors. And I agree with you that non-actors just add to the story. The person who plays Jesus, I think, gives a really good performance. So, yeah. And he does go on to do other films after this, though he doesn't primarily, I think, make his living as an actor. He does, though, eventually use a lot more known actors in his films, like Toto and Silver the uh, Magnano. And here it is very, very neorealist, except that maybe, as you said, it's a bit aged more. It has that. I was wondering, do you think he got in his later work more well-known actors because he could afford them? Or do you think that was a decision he made up purely artistically? I don't know. I do know that other people like Visconti with La Terra Trema. Neorealism grew out of Italy before the war ended. Germany had left the southern part of Italy, but were still in the mountains. And they wanted to make films, but they had no money. They didn't have much in the way of equipment, etc., etc. So what do you do? Well, Rossellini did use Anna Mignani and another major actor as the leads in Roma City, but everybody else were just people on the street. You do what you can. Yeah, make a plus out of your minus. Yeah, they're not going to let something silly like the war. That's not going to stop him. Rossellini tried to stay, especially after his making films with Bergman. It continually stayed with that approach, but others like Piscotti and Fellini made the decision as they got more money and they got better equipment and et cetera, et cetera, they stopped making neorealist films. It went so far and then they started doing other things. So I don't know exactly if that's what Pasolini did, but he even used Anna Mignani early on in Mama Roma. Yeah, I suppose it was whatever was happening at the time. I don't know the answer to that question. In terms of what I think is more important is that it worked, <laughs> whatever the motivation was. As one critic said, it's probably the best biblical epic ever made. That I agree with. I was going to say that exact thing. For me, it's the outstanding biblical. I don't know if you call it epic, or it's a, certainly an epic tale, but it's not told in an epic way. For some reason, it reminds me of the scene from Indiana Jones on the Last Crusade, where <laughs> they're finding the Holy Grail, and they have a choice of all these grails. The, the grail is the, the cup that Christ used at the Last Supper. As Harrison Ford said, well, Christ was a humble carpenter. He's not going to have this incredibly bejeweled 
jeweled and golden and decorated fancy grail. He's just going to have this very humble clay or whatever metal grail, and he chooses that instead. And I'm going, yes, the Christ story doesn't need the big epic story of George Stevens or movies like that to tell the story. It doesn't need to be the big bejeweled golden grail. It needs to be the humble clay grail to make the movie. Well, I think that's what worked for it. The important thing is that it is still relevant and still amazing and that it has within it, in my opinion, more of the truth. And that's why it works, apart from the style and he was really good at his job, Pasolini. I think the thing, one of the reasons I fell in love with him at age 15 was that he had a perfect uh, name, Pierre Paolo Pasolini. It's such a great name, isn't it? It was more than style. The reason it stays relevant even now is because it's so good. It's such a good film. Right. The film grew out of an earlier film of Pasolini. It's a short film called La Ricotta, which was part of the omnibus film Rogo Paci. And Pasolini's short film is about a director played by Orson Welles, though it's modeled on Pasolini, doing a film about the passion of Jesus, in which the actor playing Christ is treated so badly, he actually dies while filming. And this was very controversial. Pasolini was taken to court for holding contempt for the state religion. Mm. He was sentenced to four months, but he paid a fine, so he didn't serve, and the sentence declared void. But according to Barth David Schwartz's book, Pasolini Requiem from 1992, the impetus for Matthew started in 1962. Pasolini had accepted an invitation from Pope John XXIII for a new dialogue with non-Catholic artists. Pasolini went to a sissy fort, but the papal visit caused traffic jams, so Pasolini couldn't leave his hotel room. He came across a copy of the New Testament. He read all four Gospels straight through. And he said that adapting a film from one of them, quote, threw in shade all the other ideas for work I had. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Unlike other depictions of Jesus' life, Pasolini does not embellish the biblical account. He doesn't present an amalgam of the four Gospels. He doesn't add anything to them. I can't place the critic, but I remember someone saying to the effect, it's amazing what you can do if you just stick to the book. <laughs> That's a great comment. And also, I think the fact that it's spare in its true sense, that it's not not overcrowded with different versions and overlays and imposing your own thoughts on it even though by definition by editing it in to make a film you are to a degree it does work very very well because of it being so pointed i think it works on every level people were surprised at the film because he was an atheist, homosexual, and Marxist. In 1966, at a press conference, Pasolini was asked why he, as an unbeliever, had made a film with religious themes. If you know that I am an unbeliever, then you know me better than I do myself. I may be an unbeliever, but I am an unbeliever who has a nostalgia for a belief. <laughs> That's really a great comment, isn't it? I can kind of empathize with that. I think it's a better definition of agnosticism. I think that's transparent in the way the film's made. You can take the boy out of the Catholic Church, but you can't take the Catholic out of the boy. Yeah, you can take the religion out of me, but I still want the chicken soup. Yeah. One of the things he did, and one of the things I think that makes it look the way it looks, because it often looks very pageant-like or like a tapestry or, or very studied, is that he wasn't trying to necessarily do a realistic historical approach. He was going to dramatize a myth. And he said, quote, when narrating the history of Christ, I did not reconstruct Christ such as he actually was. If I had reconstructed Christ's history as it actually was, I would not have made a religious film since I am not a believer. I do not think Christ was God's son. I want to consecrate things again because that is possible. I want to re-mythologize them. I did not want to reconstruct the life of Christ as it really was. I wanted to make the history of Christ just 2,000 years of Christian storytelling about the life of Christ, since it is the 2,000 years of Christian history that have mythologized this group. That makes sense. I feel that he achieved that. Kind of forced up to my thinking because I think he did exactly precisely what he wanted. It does feel very mythic. The film received mostly positive reviews from critics, including several Christian critics. Philip French called it a noble film. Alexander Walker said that it grips the historical and psychological imagination like no other religious film I have seen. And for all its apparent simplicity, it is visually rich and contains strange, disturbing hits and tones about Christ in this mission. However, Marxist in like. I would use the word hypnotic. I know it's in the gospel, but it covers things like the fact he has brothers and sisters. In other films about Jesus, are never mentioned. If you read the book, I think it's I Rubin by Robert Graves. He had seven brothers and sisters. Oh, he was one of seven. And I think that whole thing and that he was a descendant supposedly of King David and all that kind of thing 
which places him very firmly in the context of some might say he was the false messiah, some would say he was the messiah because that qualified him as being a potential messiah. And I think that's all sort of touched on very well in this film. I can't confirm this. This is just from memory. But Zeffirelli was not a fan or more accurately. He was very upset when Matthew was chosen by the Vatican as one of the greatest religious films. There was a time when the Vatican brought out, I think, what they thought was one of the greatest films of all time. And under religious films, they have the Gospel according to St. Matthew. Well, his two-part Jesus of Nazareth was not chosen. And he got very upset a film by a Marxist and an atheist was chosen over his. Funny enough, I was going to ask you, because I don't know, what the relationship between Zeffirelli and Pasolini was in general. Beyond that, I don't know. I do know that they used the same cinematographer. Yeah. It is interesting, though. They were both gay. Yeah. I remember once on 60 Minutes when Zeffirelli was auditioning in for Endless Love, and he made them all take off their shirts <laughs> and would get very friendly with them. Yeah. That was a little disturbing, and I'm not sure why they showed it on 60 Minutes. He had that inclination. I met him a little bit later than Pasolini. He was at Twickenham Film Studios in London. Guido Cohen, who was the head of the studios, introduced us. And he, he grabbed me around the neck and gave me a full-on French kiss. Hello. Which <laughs> was a little strange. <laughs> Take me out to dinner first. <laughs> and I pulled away because I just didn't know how to react at all. I was a kid, you know, a teenager. And I guess I was prettier than I presently am. Well, Pasolini today would have trouble with the Me Too movement because what he would do is he would go around and cast what we affectionately called, quote, rough trade yeah, to be in his films with the object that he would have sex with them. Sometimes very young because in Hawks and Sparrows, one of the male leads is 15. That was Pasolini's boyfriend at the time. And some people said that was one of the causes as to why he was yeah. murdered. Sad, isn't it? Yes, that's exactly the story I'd heard. I think you stated that your father was involved in the distribution of the film in England. I read that it took three years to get into the theater, not because of controversy, but was there some other reason or was that in? It was just a hard film to book. You know, people just didn't want it. They thought there might be problems and all that kind of stuff. When you're distributing films, you have to try and book what you can book into other people's cinemas. That was a tough sell. About the same period or a little later, we had a similar problem with, and then eventually did very well comparatively, was last year in Mar- Bad. But I think I read they played for 17 weeks. Yeah, it did. The same has happened with last year in Once it got into place, there was an audience. You just had to convince the people that had the cinema, there's an audience for this. It was almost like saying, we've got some poison here we want to sell you. By saying, I've got a film here by a guy you don't know, speaking in a foreign language. It was like, go away. (laughs) In fact, there was only two companies, us and a company called Gala, I think, a man called Kenneth Rive, who were really trying to push foreign films. It just wasn't a thing you could do. The quid pro quo was we'd try and give them something really commercial and try and deliver these kind of things in. Pretty much in England or UK, in each town, there'd be one cinema that could kind of play them and they had kind of an audience. It's now it's better than it was then. But there's less of those cinemas around because it's the multiplexes. You can't even get two million pound films because the monster films are going to get all the play dates. When it comes to the acting, we've talked about this some because there are no professional actors here. He did make some. He used Anna Mignani, Toto, Terrence Stamp. But generally, for a large number of films, he used non-actors. He cast his own mother, Susanna, as the elderly mother of Jesus, who certainly grew old in 30 years from the 16-year-old Mary in the opening. The cast also included notable intellectuals such as writers Enzo Siciliano, Alfonso Gatto, poet Natalia Ginsberg, and Rodolfo Locke, and philosopher Giorgio Agamben. Enrico Arizoki, who played Jesus, was a 19-year-old economic student from Spain and a communist activist. And the rest of them were made from Barrio, Matera, and Masafra, where the film was shot. And I think it's just very effective that he used non-actors. In a funny kind of way, I wonder how, if it could have turned out as good, had it have been more conventional. I think it worked partly because it's unconventional. I don't think it would. It would have been like The Greatest Story Ever Told or yeah. Jesus of Nazareth. It would have been fine, entertaining, but I just don't think it would have had the power. I think it's the ideal approach. The cinematography was done by Antonio Delacoli. Pasolini said this was a very different experience from his shooting style on films like Acatone, which he called reverential, which I think means that he sort of put the camera there and he didn't try to move the camera such to interpret it. But when it came to this film, it came out, quote, rhetorical. For example, when he's shooting baptism scene, 
He's using the zoom and new camera movements and new frames. So it wasn't, as he said, reverential. It was more of an interpretation or a way of telling the story, putting himself more onto the story. He said it was almost Godardian. Coley did 12 films for Fassolini. Also worked with Fellini, Ma, Leone, and Polanski. He seems to be one of the major, major cinematographers, not just in Italy, but I would say the world, even though he didn't work much outside of Italy. But Luigi Scassionocci did the art direction. Danilo Donati did the costume design. Donati worked with major directors, Pasolini, Seffirelli, Fellini, Ini. These areas is where there is a sort of postmodernism to it. The, the look of the characters and the costuming is often anachronistic. The costumes of the Roman soldiers and the Pharisees are influenced by Renaissance art, where Jesus' appearance is more like Byzantine art. He's trying to create more of a myth than an exact reproduction of the time. And he does this not just with costumes, but the score. Yeah. Everything from classical music to spirituals to Jewish ceremonial songs, African songs. So he was bringing all sorts of other ways of looking at the film. I thought particularly the African songs worked particularly well. Yes. I think they used that, wasn't it at the crucifixion or something? It is, yeah. It was fabulous. With that, here's some more information about the film. I don't have any information when it comes to how much the film cost or how much it made. Though we do know in England it played for 17 weeks, and I would say that probably just that it did very well then. The film is considered a classic of world cinema and the neorealist genre. After initial release, it won the Venice Film Festival Grand Jury Prize, three Nastro d'Argento Awards, including Best Director. And the Argento Awards are like our National Society of Film Critics Awards. Yeah. In 2015, the Vatican City newspaper La Osservatore Romano called it the best film on Christ ever made. It was also nominated for three Academy Awards. Best Art Direction, Set Direction, Black and White. Best Costume, Black and White. And Best Music Scoring of Music Adaptation Retreat. This was the year of A Man for All Seasons and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. The Battle of Algiers was the Italian entry. The film is dedicated to Pope John XXIII. The announcement at the opening credits reads that it is dedicated to the dear, joyous, familiar memory of Pope John XXIII. At the 25th Venice International Film Festival, a crowd gathered to boo Pasolini but cheered him after the film. The film later won the grand prize at the International Catholic Film. The film was nominated for the UN Award at the 21st British Academy Film Awards. I did not check this, even though I knew it ahead of time, and I should have kept a lookout for it. But when they are taking Christ down from the cross, in the distance, you can see a car driving around the corner. <laughs> I've watched it several times, did notice that. So with that, let's start closing out, and I chose you to choose a film or two that might interest our audience. Well, for me, I go back to Mel Brooks, because I think his treatment of historical things in History of the World Part One was the perfect antidote to people that want to be too serious. The scene where he is King Louis and is good to be the king sums him up. I was once walking along with somebody at studios in Hollywood, and I said, do you ever see Mel Brooks? I understand he's at the studio. And he went, no, no, never see him. And on the other side of him, walking down the same path next to him he was looking the other way was Mel Brooks who heard this conversation and the whole way to the commissary made me laugh just silently parodying this guy saying he's not there but also with tremendous irreverence and I think the way he dealt in the producers with Nazis and Jewish humour combined with Nazism is a wonderful combination and then if you're talking just about kind of religiosity handled in a completely different way which I found quite uncomfortable but I love the action scenes the old version of Ben-Hur the one with Charlton Heston and that was because when I was a young guy I somehow had never seen the film and I was making a film about the Cannes Film Festival in 1969 I was 19 into the urinals came Charlton Heston to stand next to me as he was doing what he was doing and I was doing what I was doing and I looked up because I'm 5'10 but he was way bigger than that and it's like looking up at God And I said, do you mind if I interview you, Mr. Heston? He was pretty insulted that I had not seen Ben-Hur, which I rapidly corrected. And I kind of think, well, I stood at the urinal and eventually had lunch with him back in London. It was like being with God. He had this God-like presence. I think he was an excellent Ben-Hur. I just thought the action scenes were just brilliant. I never saw anything else like it until Gladiator. For me, there are a few ways to go, but I've chosen these two. The greatest story ever told is George Stevens' interpretation. The Christ Story. It's probably the least kitschy of all American epic. It has a brilliant performance by Max von Sydow as a very secular Jew. Yeah. Robert Bresson's 1951 Diary of a Country Beast about a sickly priest assigned to a parish, a small northern French town that he fails to really connect with parishioners. Tiarimo is another film, Pasolini, released in 1968. Terence Stamp as a spiritual figure who comes into 
the life of a bourgeois household. He basically sleeps with everyone there, <laughs> and each has a different and profound spirit. It's an interesting group of choices. What is next? What should we be expecting from you? Presently, I'm working on the finish, and which is due this month, of the film Dirty, Sexy and Totally Iconic about the celebrating the anniversary of Get Carter, editing on two others and in development on two more, and pre-production on one. So it's a whole bunch of stuff. But as these things go, they take time. Uh, we also have a little publishing company that's putting out some stuff next month that's new called Give, Get, Go Publishing. We have a radio station we'd like people to listen to on the on the web called Classic Drama Radio. And we have an educational division and a coaching division. So we are kind of busy. Yes, it sounds like. I'll list my usual litany. I'm a screenwriter and script consultant. And you can find more information about that on my Howard Kessler screen consultation page on Facebook. My blog is called Rantings and Ravings, and there I explore issues on film screenwriting. I've published two books of short stories on Amazon. Starving Artist and Other Stories and The Five Corporations. These are sci-fi, supernatural, and fantasy short stories. I've also published the second edition of a screenwriting book for rentings and ravings. I am an amateur photographer, and you can find those on Instagram. The previous episode was with novelist, blogger, and film guest James Wilson, as well as Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo and Francois Truffaut's two films about women who are one thing in the first half turn out to be something else in the next half. Next will be the Halloween episode with returning guest horror movie lover Lisa Mulvihy, where we will discuss the American film The Exorcism of Emily Rose and the German film Requiem, both about real-life exorcisms based on the same truth. And with that, Tony, I want to thank you very much for being a guest again on my show. My absolute pleasure, and I hope other people get to enjoy it as much as we did.